Well, we're going to continue our study in Mark's gospel today. And Mark really has one purpose laid out from verse 1. It says, in the beginning is the gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is showing us again and again that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, it simply means this, that he is the long-awaited Savior and King that God had promised his people. He said, I'm going to send you a deliverer who's going to deliver my people and is going to bring them into my kingdom. And we've seen Jesus' power. It's amazing what he does as he heals so many people in Mark chapter 1, as he even has power over the demonic realm. Jesus shows his, his power, his authority from God in his teaching. What he taught was new. He taught that, where is it? My verses. The time is fulfilled, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in this good news. As Jesus lives his life and walks among the people, as he teaches the people, as he heals a leper, Jesus does not fit in with the people's ideas about the Messiah. And so, in particular, the last time we opened up Mark's gospel together, we see Jesus doing things that really cause the tensions to rise, particularly from the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. And what does Jesus do? He forgives a man's sins, which is something that only God can do. He claims to be God. And have the authority of God. And then he makes a tax collector a traitor, a cheat, his disciple. And so tensions are rising. People are upset at him. This is the setting in which our next story comes. Jesus comes along and he doesn't live his life by the traditions and the convictions of the scribes. He doesn't live his life based on their interpretations of God's law. Now, what he does is he lives his life perfectly in line with God's ways. And that really challenges their way of thinking. It really can today. Is it really God's ways that we're following? Is it really God's convictions, Jesus' heart that we have? Or is it our own way? Jesus is different. And he reveals a completely different way of life. He talks of entering his kingdom by faith and by repentance. And he talks about living in the joy of his presence. 
We're going to see that this morning. The joy of following Jesus. And this new way does not fit with the traditions of of the people. This new way isn't brought about by the law of Moses. But it comes about through Jesus alone. I would sum up what we're going to see in our passage this morning. It's this. Jesus' way is the only way. And his way, and we should never forget this, is the way of joy. We see that traditions don't trump Jesus. It's not traditions here and Jesus down here. And it's also that traditions aren't to mixing with Jesus. It's not add Jesus to a little bit of our traditions or have Jesus but add a little bit of our ways and our convictions. It's all Jesus. It's all him. And it's a way of joy and life. So we're going to read Mark chapter 2, beginning of verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, (coughs) Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this is where our passage ends. I'm going to reread verse 18 just so we have the context of our story. So the context is that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's the occasion that sparks this uh, Jesus teaching. You'll notice we got two very different groups fasting here. You've got John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees and their disciples. And uh, it seems as though this is some kind of a scheduled fast. Different groups were getting together for this purpose. Um, We're not told what the occasion was here. But we are told, or we can see from last week's passage, that this is taking place during or shortly after Jesus had been eating with Levi and his friends. Okay? So just so we all get the picture, we've got the scribes and we've got John's disciples, and they were fasting, they were not eating. And we've got Jesus and his disciples have been 
feasting with Levi, and they've been they've been having food with Levi and his friends. You see that contrast there? The people did. That's why they're asking this question. They're asking, why aren't your people, Jesus, why aren't they fasting too? That's a fair question. And Jesus answers them fairly. But uh, I think one thing that might help us is just to take a step back and learn a little bit about fasting in the Bible. There's only one fast commanded in the Old Testament. That was a fast that was commanded on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And that was a day when the Jewish people, by faith, they were to look to God for forgiveness of their sins on that day. They would slaughter one goat, and then they would send the other one off. They'd lay hands on it, and that was the goat that would take the sins of the people away. And this was a symbol of the forgiveness that God could offer them through the shedding of blood. That was an occasion for fasting. In many ways, I'm looking forward to the fulfillment that would come. Nothing is mentioned about the Day of Atonement here. But we know that by the time of Jesus, what had happened was many of the Jews had taken to fasting twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays, they would fast for 12 hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Really, actually, sun up to sundown. So you got a bit of a longer day, you're going to have to fast for a little bit longer, right? And this was their tradition. It wasn't a command of God. We see many fasts in the Bible, but they were voluntary occasions. Occasions of great mourning over sin, over trouble, and crying out to God. This was a scheduled fast that came about as a tradition of the Pharisees. And other groups, including John's disciples, were participating in whatever this fast was. So Jesus responds to their question in verses 19 and 22. And how he responds to this is to give examples, illustrations from life that they would know and understand. And this is what he say, says. This is my summary of what he's saying to them through these examples. He's saying there's a time for that fasting, or there was a time for that fasting. But something totally new is here. There's something totally new. It has to do with his presence. We'll see that. It has to do with his presence. So the three examples are a wedding, new clothes, and new wine. We're going to look first at the wedding in verses 19 and 20. I want to read that together. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. 
So just so we get the picture here, weddings are a pretty big deal in pretty much every culture at every time. Um, they're a fairly big deal today. People get excited and happy, especially if it's their friends or family. But a Jewish wedding was a, an even bigger deal than in our culture today. They would have a week-long, seven full days of getting together and feasting and rejoicing. And it was a big celebration. It was such a big celebration. It was so special that friends and family were exempt from fasting. Even the rabbis realized and recognized that a wedding is not an occasion for mourning. Uh, It's an occasion for joy. And so they made an exception to their tradition of fasting twice a week uh, during a wedding. Jesus is saying to them, now is not the time to mourn. Now is not the time of looking forward to redemption. I'm here. When he says, he doesn't say it, but he's basically saying, I'm the bridegroom here. Saying, look, they have the bridegroom. They can't fast right now. This isn't a time. For sorrow, this is a time for joy. Now, Jesus does two things here. One thing that he does is he echoes John the Baptist's words. In John chapter 3, verse 29, we see John saying, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, right? And the friend of the bridegroom, who's there with him, stands and hears him, and he's glad. He rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John says, he applies it to himself. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So he saw himself as the one standing beside the bridegroom, waiting and ready and hearing his voice and the gladness of his coming. It's interesting, isn't it? Because John's disciples were here fasting away. But Jesus tells them plainly, I'm the the bridegroom that John was talking about. And so it would have been a bit of a a rebuke for them that they should at least should have known. Um, Maybe this wasn't an occasion for sorrow. That they could have been looking to Jesus as some of John's disciples became Jesus' disciples. Andrew, Simon Peter, likely John as well. But more than that, more than echoing John's words, when Jesus says he's the bridegroom, he's identifying himself with the one that the Old Testament scriptures identify as the bridegroom. And you know who that is? It's the Lord God. He is the bridegroom of his people. He's the one who calls them, who betroths his people, and and who redeems them. Over and over in in the Old Testament, the people of God go astray. That's really the context 
Isaiah 53, where he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. The people of God have gone astray. And then Isaiah 54, God says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm going to call my people back and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to gather them together. So Jesus is saying, my presence is the presence of God, your bridegroom, your Lord. And my presence then means joy for my people. It means redemption. It means restoration for a people that have gone astray from God. My way is the way of joy. With God among his people, fasting just isn't appropriate. (laughs) It wasn't a time for sadness. You see, a new beginning had come, the beginning of a new covenant relationship. The first covenant had been broken time after time after time. And so it is in our lives. Time after time, we reject God. But a new covenant is here. And it's true, the wedding consummation is still to come. There's a time of complete joy and fullness in the presence of God that is yet to come. But here's the thing. The bridegroom has arrived on the scene. And that was reason for great joy. Would the people recognize him? How many of them did? So far, just a few of Jesus' disciples. With Jesus, there is joy. Do you believe that? You know, life in the God's kingdom is not like a funeral wake where we go around with dour faces, just serious and sad all the time. Don't get me wrong. There's reason for sorrow in this world. But there's also with Jesus reason for great joy. But Jesus does add a twist in verse 20. He uh, tells us there will be reason for sorrow. He says, when the bridegroom is taken away, okay, then they'll fast in that day. Then there will be an occasion for it because the bridegroom has died. And yet, there's still hope. For we serve a risen Savior. The wedding isn't called off. And so we live in this in-between of of times of sorrow where fasting may yet be appropriate and mourning is a real reality as we look at sin, as we see the suffering that sin results in, as we see the death that comes in the midst of our lives today. And yet we have this hope. We have this joy that Jesus is alive. And so Christians are reminded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians that we uh, do not grieve without hope. An attitude of joy marks out those that know Jesus. His way is the joyful way. And that ought to be a check for our hearts to 
Can we find joy in Jesus? Or are we wallowing in the sorrows of this world? Do we have a hopeful outlook that is based not on how things will turn out today or tomorrow, but how they'll turn out in eternity and who it is that we have the hope of of going to be with, to be with the Lord. I'll tell you one thing. The scribes were not looking to Jesus. They were not rejoicing that he was among them. They did not see him as the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem his people. And so they made their lives and they ordered their lives around their traditions and their convictions and their way of life rather than about Jesus. And their lives as a result were joyless as a wake for the dead. Their convictions blinded them to Jesus and continued to for most of them throughout Jesus' ministry. We're not going to come away from this theme. We're going to see this next week. So what does Jesus do? How does he speak to them and to us in this situation? He's told us there's reason for joy in following him and that he is here and that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. That He is the Lord himself come to save them. Jesus gives then two more examples that teach us our need for him our need for God's new way of life and joy in his kingdom. Now, these two examples were pretty everyday examples for them. We'll talk a little bit about what they mean, because maybe for some of us, it's hard to put ourselves there. But the first one is in verse 21 and the second verse 22. So we'll take one verse at a time, one example at a time. Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk or new cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, so in those days, people patched clothes, right? Cloth was expensive. Wanted to conserve it, and they'd patch their clothes up make them nice again, make them wearable. I'm pretty clueless about patching things up. (coughs) I I can do an iron-on. That's about it. But they understood, and you will if you have done any kind of patching or mending of clothing, that um, you don't patch an old clothes with a new piece of cloth, with a cloth that hasn't been shrunk yet, that doesn't fit to that old garment. Because what will happen is it's going to shrink in the washing. And then it tears. And the tear's worse. So when you try to put the new and the old cloth together, it's, it's not better, it's worse than before. That's what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus referring to? Well, 
He's talking about the good news of his kingdom and his teaching and his ways versus the traditions of the scribes, which included fasting, but he's moved away from that example and speaking in general here. Jesus didn't come to put a patch on the scribes' convictions or traditions. He didn't come to add to the ways of John's disciples. He came to give us a new wardrobe. Came to offer us the new garment of righteousness as a gift of God's grace. So often, we want to mix our traditions and our works and our ways with the grace of God, but they just don't mix. You try it, what happens? What does Jesus say? It's worse than before. Now, I think it's important that we see here that it's not just the the traditions of the scribes, But even the first covenant that God gave, the first covenant of the laws of Moses, that covenant did not mix with Jesus' new way. Over and over again, the bride of Jesus broke that covenant. Over and over again, we break the law of God. Jesus bears witness that his new way was in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He says, I didn't come to abolish or get rid of the law, but I came to fulfill it. And so it's not a mixing of Moses' covenant, the first covenant, and then Jesus. Like we'll we'll add them together. But it's a saying, The old is now done. It is fulfilled. And Jesus is that fulfillment. This is the teaching again and again, whether you read Romans, whether you read Galatians, of the New Testament. And this is pictured by Jesus' example here and his example given in the next verse. So Jesus isn't rejecting God's ways. What is he saying? Your ways don't fit with God's. And even God's ways, you cannot fulfill. You can't keep them. And so you need the grace of God. You need me as king and savior to live according to the ways of God. See, only Jesus' fulfillment of the first covenant can bring about salvation. And you can't mix your works, your traditions, along with that. You know, I think sometimes we wonder, why do I lack joy and purpose in my Christian life? Well, perhaps it's because like the Galatians, we've gone back to thinking that we can somehow add to the work of Jesus, that perhaps we need to add circumcision or we need to uh, dress a certain way, or (coughs) um, 
keep the Sabbath today or else we will not enter the kingdom of God. There's so many ways that we can add to Jesus' work. We can make it about our convictions and traditions rather than Jesus. So if we're to sum up this parable, you could say it this way. You can't fix up the old way with the new. It's not how it works. It's the new way. And the second, you can't contain the new in the old. Now the examples of wine and wineskins. Verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what you need to understand here is that wineskins um, stretch and stiffen as they age. They were made of animal skin, leather. Um, and, and so they, as they get older, they can't uh, stretch with the fermenting process of the wine. So if you put new wine that still has a, a bit of a fermenting process left, it's going to need to expand, but the old wineskin is not able to expand with it. It bursts, it's destroyed. They both are gone. And what use is that? When we come to the Last Supper, and we're going to partake of communion together on the Lord's table. Jesus connects at that Last Supper the image of wine with the new covenant. He connects the two. And this is what he says. He says, this cup, this cup of wine that I hold here is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, through my blood comes about this new covenant, this new relationship through, through my sacrifice, through my death, through my blood. Jesus is interpreting for us his own parable. When we think about the new wine, when we think about the new cloth, these things represent the new life and the new covenant relationship that comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to have this restored relationship with God than through Jesus. It comes through the King and the Bridegroom who died to save his people. So life does not come through the law of Moses. It did not come through the traditions of the scribes. It didn't come through their interpretations of the law. The first covenant served as a shadow of Christ. It had a purpose for a time. It had a particular function. Just like the old wineskin used to be useful. It had a purpose for a time. 
But like the ripping of the cloth and the wineskins, we can hear the sound of ripping throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. From chapter 1, verse 10, where the heavens rip open at Jesus' baptism, to the high priest ripping his garments when Jesus claims to be God at his trial in Mark chapter 14, to when the temple veil is ripped open as Jesus dies on the cross, Mark 15. Why? Because the new covenant has come. It's not contained in the first covenant. It wasn't limited by man's traditions. The new covenant is subject to the Lord, the bridegroom, and his kindness, his grace. And so the good news for us today is that Jesus Christ remains the same. He remains a bridegroom who seeks out his bride to this day and who loves them to the end and who saves us not by what we have done, not because of our traditions, but because of his shed blood on the cross. At the end of the day, the question that I want to leave us with is who do we listen to? Who do we trust? Who or what gives us joy? Jesus invites us to experience the joy of his presence. But to experience him, we must submit to him. We need to let his heart and his will shape and mold us after himself. But we all have convictions, don't we? And I got to warn myself sometimes, and I'll warn you guys, that we're not the most right person in the room, hey? We might be tempted to think that sometimes, to think that I'm pretty righteous compared to the, the rest. Hopefully not. I hope that we realize that we're all sinners. that we're all fools without the grace of Jesus. And so we continue to need his grace and wisdom in our lives. We're nothing without the work that Jesus has done to bring us into his kingdom, into a new relationship with the Lord God. So let me put it this way. Either your convictions will rule your heart or your convictions will be ruled by Jesus. Who determines what you say, what you believe, how you live. Either your convictions will trump Jesus or he will trump everything in your life. Jesus didn't come to mix with our ways and our thoughts and our wants. He came to transform us through the new covenant that he made by his own blood. And he saves us by his grace alone.
that means that his way is the only way. But it also means that it's the way of joy. It's the way to life. We need to remember that. My challenge for us is four C's, okay? Four C's. Um, come to learn from Jesus. In other words, be teachable. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to listen to his teaching, what he says about fasting and the traditions of man? Second, be confident in Jesus, not yourself. Let's not be so sure of ourselves, but let's be sure of Jesus and what he's done and what that means for us that we can live with confidence. So come and learn from Jesus. Be confident in Jesus. So, uh, thirdly, be conformed to Jesus. What I mean by this is be willing to adjust your convictions and heart to Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? If Jesus says something different than the way you've always thought, who's going to budge? Right? And, and lastly, above, above everything almost, I will say this, consider the bridegroom, consider Jesus. He claims that the kingdom of God comes through him alone. And he sacrificed himself so that we could enter into the joy of his presence, into the joy of his kingdom. And there is no greater happiness. There is no greater joy than to know him. He is the sum of all that is good. He is the strongest He's the most lovely, the most pure, most righteous man that ever lived. He is God, creator of you, creator of me. He's the king of the universe. And so he's the only one worth listening to.